Good to see you guys this morning. Hope you guys all had a happy Thanksgiving. So Rennie uh, asked us, I don't know if it was yesterday or the day before, how you describe a turkey the day after Thanksgiving. Oh, no. <laughs> kind of. Um, she said, uh, lucky. Because <laughs> if, you're, if you're addressing a turkey the day after Thanksgiving, he or she is obviously quite lucky to still be around, right? Yeah, so uh, as Steve mentioned, we are continuing on in our look at Second Corinthians, and you might remember from Michael's message last week that uh, chapters 8 and 9 are kind of a bump out um, where Paul is responding to a commitment that the Corinthians had made maybe a year prior, not exactly sure when with regards to taking up an offering and gifts for the saints in Jerusalem who were being persecuted and who were in need. And Michael shared a great message last week about uh, the church model, the examples that we had in the book of Acts of similar events, and what we can then apply to our lives today in a similar way. Uh, And I think that we here at Renew do a great job of employing some of those principles of uh, helping the needs and meeting the needs of saints and fellow brethren here in our fellowship when we have it. So uh, that was uh, a nice message. And we're going to continue on this morning. And what's interesting about our text this morning is that this next group of uh, verses is going to be verses 16 through 24 of chapter 8. And 16 through 24 of chapter 8 is kind of a continuation of what Paul had started in chapter 8. But at the same time, they start to bleed and transition into what he's going to talk about in chapter 9 also. So this morning, we're actually going to do chapter 8, verses 16 through 24 as a section. And then we're also going to look at verses um, 1 through 5 of chapter 9 as a section. And they're going to bleed, and they're going to be a soft transition, but that's how we're going to break down this morning. So if you remember, Paul began... By addressing the Corinthians in chapter 8, verse 1, and he used the Macedonians as an example of giving. And he said, their giving looked a certain way. And we saw that there were five descriptions of what the Macedonians' uh, generosity looked like. I'm just going to repeat those for us just as a reminder. Uh, The first principle was that the Macedonians gave as an expression of God's grace. It wasn't about God being super, super gracious to them and giving out of what they had, but rather, when they gave to those in need, it was an expression of God's grace. Second thing we saw was that they gave when they themselves were already struggling. How many of you were kind of challenged last week when Michael shared that? I I listened to it, and, and I was like, oh... So they gave when they themselves were already struggling. The third thing we saw was that they gave according to their ability and beyond their ability. So they gave, gave what they had and they gave beyond as well. They were very eager to give. That was the fourth principle we saw. They were very eager to give. In fact, they said... How can we join in this ministry with you, Paul? How can we be a part of what's going on in Jerusalem, back in Judea? How can we help those who are being persecuted and suffering? And lastly, point number five, they gave as a part of their commitment to the Lord. 
So they saw that giving and helping the needs of those who were in need as part of their commitment to the Lord. So what Paul is then going to go on and address this morning, and what we're going to see in verses 16 through 24, is that he wants to assure the Corinthians that the gifts that he's encouraging them to give will be used properly, and that therefore they should make good on their promise to give. Does that make sense? In other words, he's going to remind them, you guys made a commitment in the past to help the saints in Jerusalem or to help those in need. And somewhere along the line, you've started to kind of backtrack a little bit on that. And I want to remind you and I want to encourage you to keep that commitment that you made already. Make good on your promise. And at the same time, I also want to remind you that the gifts that you give are going to be used for the intended purpose. Now, why might he need to do that? Why might Paul need to defend, again, the gifts being used properly? Well, remember that we said there was an implication or a hint that false teachers had come in. And they had come into the midst of the Second Corinthians, the, the Corinthians, and they were starting to um, challenge the validity of Paul's ministry. And they were even looking at Paul himself, and they were saying, well, you know, if he was a, a real orator, if he was a really good speaker like the rest of our philosophizers and pontificators of the day, he would charge a fee for his services. And he would dress a certain way. He'd look a lot better than this ragtag kind of guy. He would have status in society. So they were critical of Paul for not behaving that way, right? But then we also get a glimpse or a hint that they were critical of him when he did take up an offering that, oh, he's skimming off the top. He's going to use that. He says it's for the saints over there in Jerusalem, for the people who need it, who are people who are impoverished. But he's really just taking it for himself. So Paul's in this situation where it's like, it's a no win for him, right? They're critical when he doesn't behave like the other consist, uh, orators of the day. And then they're critical of him when he takes up an offering and they're suspicious that it's not actually being used for its intended purpose. Anybody watch the Buckeye game yesterday? Just see a lot of um, defensive pass interference calls. Seemed like there was a ton of that, right? And, and it was both sides. And when, I, when I'm watching this and I realize, so when Michigan threw a pass, it was either defensive pass interference or it ended up being a completion that really caused some damage, like a touchdown. It was sort of an either-or. Ohio State and Michigan, to some degree, were in this position where they either got penalized or the alternative was a big score and a big play. It was a lose-lose for both parties, really. You know, so Paul's in this situation where he's like, well, shoot, I have to remind the Corinthians who I am, who my fellow workers are, and that the gifts that are going to be taken up for the saints are going to be used for their intended purpose. And that's one of the things he's going to address. So let's look at, at these verses. Verse 16, he says, But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. And we have sent along with him 
the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us, but for the glory of the Lord himself, and to show our readiness. And then in verse 20, taking precaution that no one should discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. And as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. Therefore, open before the churches, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you guys. And so what we're going to see here is, you may look at this and go, well, this is just a pretty sort of factual passage. Paul's really just kind of saying, hey, I'm sending Titus, I'm sending a couple of other brothers, here's who they are, here's why we've picked them, and then we move on. We could easily sort of do that. We could easily take this text and, and kind of blow through it and go on to the next thing. But I think what, something that's important for us is to find maybe some of these principles in here that we can still look at today as it pertains to ourselves. And so we might ask the question, why was it important for Paul to feel a need to mention these guys or even include them either in his letter or include them in this ministry of being sent for the offering. Well, for all the reasons that I mentioned earlier, that Paul has to defend what he's going to do and why he's coming and taking up an offering from the Corinthians. And he's saying, I'm sending these guys ahead for this express purpose and here's who they are. And here's why I'm picking these guys. Watch. First thing I think we might want to take away from this. Verse 19b. The character of these guys is important because they're expected to be stewards of God's gift. Verse 19b says, This is a collection. It's an offering. is a ministry performed by men but ultimately it brings glory to God. So the collection that they're going to take up is something that's being administered by the hands of men, but ultimately it brings glory to God. So though it's, it's Titus and this one brother and this other brother and Paul and, and others who come and receive the offering and the gifts from the Corinthians, Ultimately, when it's then dispensed and distributed to those who need it, it brings honor and glory to God. And so the character of these guys that are, have been chosen and sent to do this ministry is imperative. It's important because they have to operate with the utmost integrity. He says in verse 8-1 that this giving is an expression of God's grace. We should have a proper and similar perspective of our own giving, right? We should see ourselves as stewards of that which is ultimately God's. 
he has allowed us to be caretakers of that which is his for a time while we're on this side of heaven. And we should be responsible. And we should recognize that what we do and how we operate with that should bring glory to God. The second thing that we see in this selection or election of these guys with regards to their character is that their character is important because it rejects the false claims that Paul was stealing the gifts. Look at verse 20. He says, We're taking precaution that no one should discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. And it can be argued that to make an accusation against Paul about the use of the gifts would also be an accusation against all of these men who are being sent as well. So if Paul is listing these guys and their credentials, and they're well known throughout the region, and the churches know these guys, well, to imply that Paul is skimming off the top and stealing is also an accusation against these guys with very clean reputations. What's the first thing that... um, What's the first thing that you guys typically do uh, if you need a home improvement? The first call you often make is to a friend or somebody else who may or may not have had some service done, and you go, hey, who did you use for that? What you're looking for first and foremost, or maybe not, I don't know, but what you're looking for, you do it yourself, first and foremost, is somebody of good reputation and whom somebody else that you trust has used and, and is able to give a good report about. And you go, oh, okay, if my friend in whom I trust had a good experience with this person, this person is obviously trustworthy. This person has been screened. This person has been vetted. Paul's saying, these guys are well-known. They're of good reputation. And the churches have been a part of choosing them. Um... I don't know if you guys have ever heard this. I think I heard it on 104.9. They have their phraseology of the day or whatever it is. Positive thought. Thank you. Perfect. It's exactly positive thought. And uh, one time, I, not all of them stick with me, but one time this one really, really stuck with me, and it was, you should live your life in such a way that if anybody ever said anything bad about you, nobody would believe them. And that one always stuck with me. I don't know that I necessarily live up to it, employ it all the time, but I thought that what a great thought. The third thing that we see here, the third reason the character of these guys is important is because their goal is to act honorably before God and men. Their goal is to act honorably before God and men. Look at verse 21. For we have regard for what is honorable not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Remember back in chapter 4, verse 2? Flip back there for just a second. Chapter 4, verse 2. This was in that series where we saw uh, Paul continuing to defend his ministry, but he was giving four proofs of why he was adequate for the ministry, and by contrast, why the false teachers were not. And one of those proofs, we said that he operated in a clear conscience before God and men. So he says in verse 
2 of chapter 4, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now we can flip back. So he's saying the same about these fellow workers that are being sent to receive the offering. He's saying they operate with a motivation, an MO, that is to be honorable and upright in the sight of men and in the sight of God. Not just one or the other. Those go together. Think about what Paul wrote to Timothy about the qualifications for deacons and elders. You know, one of the things he says is they need to be upstanding and of good reputation in the community. You know, it's not enough to simply be squeaky clean in the church pews, but then when you go out into the public and the secular world looks at you and you're nasty, you're rude, you're disrespectful, and you don't bring honor to Jesus with your behavior, well, sorry, friends, that doesn't cut it. And Paul says here, these guys are honorable and they have a clear conscience and their goal is to operate squeaky clean in the sight of men and in the sight of God. This is who's going to handle the offering, friends. This is who's going to receive your gifts that will ultimately go to Judea. Susan and I were talking a few weeks ago, and I think maybe it was kind of surrounding the um, the Kavanaugh stuff or whatever. And we had a conversation in the, tel- in the car about, I almost said telephone, we never talk on the telephone ever. We text. That's Telephone is nonsense. Um, we were in the car, we were driving, and I was referencing the unfortunate set of circumstances that are now surrounding Bill Hybels and, and Willow Creek. And if you don't know, I'll keep it basic, but there were some accusations made about him regarding some inappropriate behavior with a woman and so on and so forth. And I think he's stepped down at, at some level. And unfortunately, that, that causes a lot of collateral damage in these congregations and in these, these fellowships when these very prominent leaders have these accusations made of them. And the point of our conversation was that there isn't necessarily any evidence that has come out that has um, categorically incriminated him. However, he admitted to being in places and in circumstances that were already beyond the line. It was already too far. Even if nothing had ever taken place, the fact that he had allowed himself to be in that position was already problematic. There was something about, I, I think he has a, a boat, you know, and he was, he was on a boat privately with, with a woman. And even if nothing took place, and, it, and may, nothing may have taken place at all, that's still too far. You just can't do that. That's not operating honorably in the sight of men and in the sight of God. We don't do a lot with our homeless ministry downtown as much right now, but for a while, when we would be done with a a corporate gathering of some sort, uh, there would be people who would need a ride home. They're homeless. And sometimes they would need a ride to the shelter or wherever they were going for the evening. And sometimes women would ask me if I could take them, and I would go, only if there's somebody else riding. I would never, ever sit in the car with one other person like that. It's just too close. 
So the second thing this morning, um, let's look at these guys in particular. We've talked about the need for them and, and why their quality and their character is important. Let's look at them specifically. Verses 16 and 17, we see that one of these guys that's going on ahead of Paul is Titus. And we know that Titus was a very trusted fellow worker of Paul. Uh, We know that he's been very instrumental in dealing with the church in Corinth. He's been taking communications back and forth. We saw earlier in our letter where Paul had longed to find him when he was there in uh, Macedonia and um, you know, was waiting for him and was even burdened because he was waiting to hear the response from the severe letter from the Corinthians. And look at what Paul says about Titus. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. And then in verse 23 he says, As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. Think about this. What Paul is saying there in verse 16 is that Titus has the same passion for the Corinthians that Paul himself has. That's what he's saying. When he says he has the same earnestness in his heart, he's saying the same passion and earnestness that I have for you guys also exists in my friend Titus. Think about that. Talk about a high accolade. I mean, that's a real compliment to somebody like Titus to have the same earnestness in his heart for the Corinthians that Paul has. And that's Paul that's saying that. Wow, this is who's coming to visit you. And this is who's going to be part and parcel to taking up this gift or this offering. And so Paul says, when you see him and when he talks, he speaks consistently in a way that I would speak of you. Think about what... um, we saw in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.20 that we are ambassadors for Christ. I heard somebody speaking about this principle the other day and I didn't like it. She said that, um, she, she talked about the role of an ambassador and she said, you know when an ambassador goes overseas and is on foreign territory, they have diplomatic immunity. And she was kind of building up this idea of diplomatic immunity and so on and so forth. And I thought, that's not what Paul was saying in, in, in his Uh, metaphor of being ambassadors for Christ. He's saying that we, as those who have been saved by the blood of Jesus, wherever we go and and whatever situation we find ourselves in, we are to have the mind of Christ. He says in Philippians, let this mind be in you that is also in Christ Jesus. And that is, your actions, your activities, your words, your speech, everything should be consistent with that of what Jesus Christ would do in that moment as well. That's what it means to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ. that in his physical absence, people will still see and hear Jesus through you. And so I would challenge us, when you're out and about and operating, is Jesus revealed through you in the circumstances that you operate in? In school? At work? In the recreational field? Whatever it might be. On the athletic field? Is Jesus revealed? Are you an ambassador? When an ambassador goes overseas, he or she speaks the mind of his or her leadership and nothing else. They don't act in a rogue way. They don't, they're not a loose cannon. They don't go off the rails. They speak only what is of the mind and the heart and the position of the leadership back home. And so Paul says, Titus is coming to you. He's got the same heart that I have for you guys. 
He speaks like I do. So then in verse 18, we see this other guy. We'll call him um, another brother number one, as, as we say uh, downtown in my urban ministry. Um, he's, we'll talk, the, let's call this guy a brother from another mother. Number one. Um, verse 18. And we have sent along with him, meaning sent along with Titus, the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. Uh, and not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work. So there was one commentary that Michael and I have, which I thought had a really neat statement about this guy here. Paul chooses to describe this gentleman that is coming along with Titus by his work in the gospel. Now this is essentially a financial ministry. This is a financial activity that's taking place. This is this is a monetary event of receiving gifts and offering to take back to the saints in Judea. And yet, the way Paul chooses to describe this gentleman is about his work in the things of the gospel. That's cool. I mean, isn't that kind of a neat... You know, he didn't, he didn't talk about he's great with accounting. He didn't say that he keeps a good ledger sheet you know, and his balance sheet is always zeroed out at the bottom and all this other stuff. He says he's worthy because he's been proven to be good with the things of the gospel. That's cool. And, I, and you know, in, in a similar way, how people handle the text up front in any given church, in any given um, Christian gathering, should in some way also lend itself to other areas of their lives. When somebody handles the word improperly, we might be concerned about how they conduct themselves and how they use scripture elsewhere in their life. When you see the word being handled properly, we can assume, in many respects, it doesn't mean that somebody is great with money or a financial genius if they can rightly divide the word truth. However, we can generally assume that they are of good character similar to that principle I mentioned about that telephone call for a home repair. Somebody else trusts, you might also. So, verse 22, our third guy. Another brother, number two. So we got Titus, we got another brother, number one, and another brother, number two. Verse 22, And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. So the first thing is that this other guy has been tested and he's been found diligent in many things. The second thing is that he's even more diligent because of his great confidence in you, meaning the great confidence he has in the Corinthians. Now, I don't know exactly what this confidence looked like or what it represents. Maybe it was confidence in their faith. Uh, maybe he had confidence in their ability to give. Um, Maybe he had a confidence in them that they would have a proper change of heart as a result of receiving this letter. Remember, if they're on the edge about their feelings towards Paul, and Paul's done this great defense of himself, maybe this other brother, number two, has a great confidence in the Corinthians that their heart will change back towards the truth. We don't know. We don't know exactly what the confidence in the Corinthians 
sort of look like, but we do know that Paul says he's got this great confidence in you, and he's been found diligent in many things. Remember what Jesus said about being faithful with little? Then you can also be trusted and faithful with much in the kingdom of heaven. But if you're reckless and irresponsible with what you've been given here, can you be trusted with bigger things? Kind of a challenge when we get back to that principle of stewardship, isn't it? How we care for or don't care for the things that God has entrusted to us is inextricably uh, linked to the bigger things. This guy has been found diligent. And so Paul kind of pulls this section together a little bit in verse 24. He says, therefore, in other words, as a result of what I've just written to you about these guys, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and our reason for boasting about you. Um, A more literal translation might be rendered like this. In the face of the churches, show the proof for us boasting. In, in the sight of the churches, in front of all who are present, and they weren't physically present, but knowing that they have sent these delegates, knowing that they have been part and parcel to choosing and electing some of these guys, and, and the churches in Macedonia have also taken up their own offering, we've been boasting about you guys in Corinth, about your generosity. Don't make us look bad, is, is effectively what he's saying. i got to... Uh, my friend Bert, who uh, shares this men's ministry with me on Wednesday mornings at downtown, he um, counsels with organizations and consults with them and provides some direction and so on and so forth. He has this uh, client that owns a funeral home. And so he reached out to me late last week and he said, I've got a client, I've got a funeral home, I've been working for them for a couple of years, they need to do an addition. And he told them, he said, I've got the perfect office for you guys. You need to do a construction project. You need to do an addition to your building. I got the perfect contact for you. He won't let you down. He's going to treat you right. It's going to be an amazing experience. And he says, like, he's totally building up our office. Like, you know, this is going to be a great partnership, you know. I'm like, okay, thanks for doing that. I always appreciate another, you know, job. But then he called on Friday. It's outside chopping wood and I answered my phone and he goes, hey, this is Bert. And I said, yeah. And he goes, we got our meeting on Tuesday, right? And I said, yeah. He goes, okay. He goes, why don't you tell me a little bit about what your process looks like? You know, wh- what are you going to talk to them about? Uh, how are you going to approach them? What, what kind of information are you going to give to them? What should they expect? And so on and so forth. And I realized partway through the telephone call, one of the things that Bert is doing is he's making sure that I'm not going to make him look like a fool. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's, he's calling to make sure, hey, I've said an awful lot about you guys. He never came out and said it, but I could tell by the questions he's asking, don't make me look bad. And so Paul is saying here, therefore, openly, before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. You know, we don't have a single leader, top-down model here at Renew. Uh, We have a a collective group of people who 
consider how we should move forward with church decisions. Um, I made a note here that we, we prayerfully consider financial decisions of the church. We ask tough questions of each other. You know, when we sit there together, Steve and Dave, Randy and Michael and I, you know, sometimes sometimes we're not all super close on a position. Sometimes we're right in here and we ask these tough questions, you know, across the table to make sure that we're discerning the heart and the mind of God and and equally importantly that we're representing the congregation here. And that the gifts and the offerings that we have been entrusted to be stewards of are being used properly just in the same way that Paul is maintaining about himself and his fellow workers. And hopefully, hopefully we exhibit some of these characteristics, both individually and collectively here at Renew. That we have an earnestness for each other, like Paul did. So then our second section here is going to be nine, uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. And I said this will be a soft transition because he mentioned um, boasting and he's going to make sure that he has to follow up uh, with their commitment. He's going to encourage them to make good on their original promise. Verses 9, 1 through 5. For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren that are boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, that as I was saying, you may be prepared, lest if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, should be put to shame by this confidence. <laughs> So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift that the same might be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. In other words, what Paul is really saying here is, I don't really need to write you about giving since you've already shown such eagerness to help. However, I have been boasting to you in these churches in Macedonia and elsewhere and when they hear about your zeal, they're stirred up. And they're excited, and they have likewise been gracious, just as you have committed to be gracious. So what you see here is Paul going, I don't really have to write to you about your generosity and your graciousness, but I'm going to. Because I want to remind you that you made this commitment and I want to encourage you to keep and make good on this promise. Let me explain it to you this way. Um, so when Susan and I make arrangements for me to pick up one of the kids at, at anything, it doesn't really even matter where, almost like clockwork, I get a text message around the time that I'm supposed to be getting in my car and en route to pick up said goods. And I know when she says, are you on your way? Or are you picking up Brenny this afternoon? It really isn't a question. It's really more of a reminder. Now, I would argue it's not necessary. You know, Paul's kind of saying, well, I really shouldn't be writing to you about this. I really don't need to but I'm going to anyway. Now, okay, so when Sayer was a baby, I 
No, not yet. I was going to mention when Sayer was a baby, I got halfway downtown on 71 before she made a noise in the back, and I was like, shoot! I forgot to drop her off at daycare. She's just such a good, quiet baby. She sat in the back in her car carrier and never made a sound until I was halfway downtown. So I did a U-turn and went up to Minerva Park. And there happened to be another time. I mean, this not a big deal. When I was at home and Sayer was at home, and then Sue came through the door, and you know, a few minutes later, she goes, so uh, where's Rennie? I was like, I don't know. You didn't get her? She's like, you're supposed to get her today. And it caused a little bit of... Um, problems for us in the sitter because the sitter had somewhere to be and Rennie needed to be picked up and there certainly wasn't enough time to go over and get her so she got home somehow. (laughs) So anyway, I really don't feel like there's all that much reason for her to need to text me years and years and years later as a reminder as a reminder to keep my commitments but she seems to anyway. So I can only assume that Paul is doing the same with the church in Corinth here. And verses 3 through 4, he says, I've been bragging about you. Don't embarrass me or yourselves when I come. Did you notice that? He says, um, in verse 3, we've been boasting about you, but don't allow our boasting to be made empty, okay, by us coming and you not being prepared. And in verse 4, if any Macedonians come with me and they find you unprepared or we all find you unprepared, uh, it's going to be kind of an embarrassment to me and it's certainly going to be an embarrassment to you guys as well. That's what he's saying in verses 3 and 4. Last thing he wants to do is show up and this offering is not ready as they had committed and promised a while back. And so then in verse 5, So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you. Now he's talking about Titus and these other two brothers, okay? I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead, in other words, ahead of Paul, to you in Corinth, and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift that the same might not be might be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now, um, Paul reveals here why he's sending these guys ahead. The first thing is they are to facilitate the preparation of this bountiful gift that had already been promised. So they're going on ahead to make sure that it's, it's facilitated, it's getting ready. Okay. The second thing, they're going on ahead so that the bountiful gift that the Corinthian church had promised would be exactly that. It would be a bountiful gift. He says that right there. He says, uh, you had previously promised a bountiful gift and we want to make sure that it is a bountiful gift that is ready when we get there. Kind of like, hey, this is what you talked about doing. This is what is in your hearts. This is what I know you guys are wired for. Make sure that you execute as you said you would. And then the third thing is, the arrival of the brethren ahead will ensure that the offering will be a blessing and not a burden. That's sort of what he's saying there at the end, where he says that it would be a bountiful gift or a blessing and not affected by covetousness. Another idea of that is that they would not be be burdened by having to scrape up, scrounge, and, and manufacture some sort of gift and offering at the last minute when Paul arrives. Okay, He's sending the, these guys on ahead so that there's time for them to prepare, to gather, and for it to be a heart decision. 
He wants it to be a heart decision. He wants it to be a willing decision, just like the Macedonians did in chapter uh, in verse eight. I mean, in chapter eight, verse four, I think. I'm just gonna have to go there. Chapter eight, verse four, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. That's how Paul described the Macedonians giving. They couldn't wait to be a part of what was going on. They were like, let us in. Let us have a role in this. Let us give generously. It was their decision. It was heartfelt. It was a joyful blessing for them to be a part of. And he's saying, if we come and all of a sudden at the last minute you're caught off guard and you're being held to this gift, you're going to scrounge around and you might be giving it begrudgingly. You might be giving it because you haven't had a prepared heart about it that you're, you've been caught off notice and you have to produce it quickly. He goes, I don't want that to happen. So I'm sending these guys on ahead. I've had the privilege of ministering um, in some other churches with different styles and um, different cultures and stuff like that. And what's interesting is there's, uh, there's a, a methodology sometimes for taking up the offering that is sometimes foreign to people who have not participated in this way before. And that is that the offering basket, plate, whatever it might be, receptacle, is up here, and there is a procession by everybody from their seats, in a systematic orderly way, but from their seats around, the offering is placed, and then they continue on back to their seats. Now, what's interesting is if you've never been a part of that style before, oftentimes you're, you're sitting there and it's like, okay, it's time for the offering. Okay, good. And then you see everybody stand up and start making, and everybody in your row starts getting up and they start making, and you're like, oh, okay, so this is how we're doing this, huh? Now you've got you to gotta produce something quick because you're going to be in the spotlight. A whole church is watching your row come through here and place something in. And I only say that to say, for somebody who's unfamiliar with that style and that administration, it can be a gift that isn't always completely heartfelt. It's one that is done kind of out of obligation. And it could even be begrudgingly because you realize you're being witnessed. There wasn't time to prepare. You didn't know what it was going to look like and you weren't ready. And so you did what you could. And so Paul says, I don't want this great promise and this earnestness that you guys have in your heart to be watered down or um, made less effective because we've caught you off guard when we came. So these guys are coming ahead and they're going to they're gonna help promote and facilitate this process. So as we kind of pull a lot of this together, like I said, some kind of factual stuff here this morning, but I think there's been some truths and some principles that we've been able to kind of pull out a little bit with regards to the character of these guys who were in, um, commissioned and selected to handle the offering and the gifts. And in the same way, there's been um, an example of, of heartfelt giving as well. And when we look at Renew, this is an opportunity to kind of brag on Renew for a second. You all are really, really great faithful givers. And it's really a great honor and a testimony to Jesus Christ. The ministry of giving here at this church is a great, great example. Now, we don't brag because of 
the amount of finances, we get to brag on the faithfulness and the heartfelt condition of the giving. And we have a savings account right now that monthly, when we are faced with making decisions about should we contribute to this or should we not, we ask the question, well, um, what is our savings intended for? Not because we're flying blind and going, whoa, I mean, what do we have a savings for? No, we're saying we have a savings for fill in the blank. And when we're being um, asked to maybe contribute to something or challenge, we then vet that opportunity against whether it lines up with why we have a savings or we don't have a savings. You know, the fact that we have money and it is to be used in ways that are consistent with a biblical model and with what we stand for and what we represent here at Renew. And so when something comes to us or an opportunity, we go, okay, is this in line with who we are and what this fund exists to do? And we challenge ourselves and we we vet it accordingly. And you guys have chosen to give faithfully and to place stewardship in the hands of others out of trust. And we operate in a very, very biblical way here at Renew, and that's a neat 